This is Southern Discomfort. What images spring up in your mind when you think about popular representations of people living in Appalachia? Is it a bearded man in a coonskin cap? A toothless old granny? Young children running around barefoot in homemade clothes? The truth is that Appalachia is as diverse in race, class, and thought as the rest of the nation, but rather than take the time to tell more complicated and nuanced stories, the media frequently fall back on stereotypes. The most recent example, but by no means the last, is director Ron Howard's new film, Hillbilly Elegy, released by Netflix in 2020. The film is based on the best-selling memoir by J.D. Vance. Like the book, the movie follows Vance's struggle to rise above impoverishment and drug addiction in southwestern Ohio, to become a Yale Law graduate, and later, a high-powered venture capitalist. Critics blasted the film as being little more than a, quote, shameless piece of Oscar bait. Nevertheless, the strategy worked. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences recently honored Glenn Close with an Oscar nomination for her portrayal of Vance's Mamaw. The fact that Howard's film garnered so much buzz and attention, despite it being mostly negative, is a testament to the power of media. Joining me now to talk about Hillbilly Elegy and why media literacy is so important if we hope to recognize the ways that Hollywood and publishers perpetuate stereotypes of Appalachian life is Meredith McCarroll. McCarroll was born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains of Western North Carolina. She currently teaches writing and rhetoric at Bowdoin College and is the author of several books, including Unwhite, Appalachia, Race and Film, and Appalachian Reckoning, an edited collection of essays written in response to J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Before we jump in, I think it's helpful to get some context about the book that the movie is based on. The release of J.D. Vance's memoir coincided with the 2016 election of Donald Trump, which is critical to understanding why it had such a big impact. The xenophobic billionaire from New York struck a chord with people living in Appalachia, capturing the electoral college vote in West Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky. People wanted to know why, so they turned to Vance's memoir as a guide to understanding the denizens of so-called Trump country. Hillbilly Elegy became a number one bestseller and catapulted Vance, in the words of writer Sarah Jones, to the position of the liberal media's favorite white trash splainer. Rather than using his platform to empower Appalachians, Vance instead issued sweeping generalizations about the region. He argued that it was the people themselves, not corporations, federal deregulation, or a lack of social mobility, that were to blame for their own economic depravity. Meredith, can you begin the discussion by talking about Vance and his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy? J.D. Vance grew up um, back and forth with connections in Appalachian, Ohio, and his connections to Appalachian, Ohio, I think are really important to him. And so when he writes this memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, he's writing a lot about the time that he spent there with his grandparents. So it's a memoir of a 
pretty tough upbringing. And I think that that part is compelling in the way that those stories are compelling to us. It's just a moving human story about someone dealing with challenges and in his case, overcoming those challenges. And so the a big portion of the book really is a memoir about growing up with a, a mother who deals with addiction and um, a solid grandmother figure, but kind of an unreliable mother for some complicated reasons. Then he he grows up there and makes his way into the Marines and then eventually is in law school at Yale and, you know, has, has made his way up and out. And that I think in and of itself is a, is a, like I said, a compelling story. It's a story we like to hold on to in America for various reasons. Um, the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is one that, you know, for better or worse, we, we like to read and we like to hear those stories. What happens, though, in Hillbilly Elegy that really is what invited such criticism from a lot of different angles is that Vance does more than just tell his own story. He shifts from first person singular to first person plural. So instead of saying, you know, I experienced this, he starts talking about we are just this way. And so he's generalizing enormously, not only about uh, his part of Appalachian, Ohio, but he's, he's really making these generalizations about all of Appalachia, which is a 13 state region that is diverse in all of the ways that that a place can be diverse. And so he's generalizing um, in a way that, you know, is, is just incorrect. But he's also just taking on this role as spokesperson, which I think it would be a kind of dangerous idea to be a spokesperson for almost anyone without, uh, you know, being asked to do so, but certainly being a spokesperson for a 13 state region is a tricky thing to try to pull off. And I think he does it without very much awareness of what he's doing and the way that he is positioning himself came to feel for me, at least as a really intentional political move to align himself with the story of poverty, white poverty, so that we can admire him for the way that he got up and out. And he can use his experience to make the claims that he makes in the book that hillbillies are poor because they're lazy and because they're stubborn and that's the way that they are and they don't need any help. And so it really has a strong political impact when he is speaking from that um, that position that he kind of stakes out in the kind of pseudo-memoir part of it. In what ways were Vance's political views amplified by the media at the time of the book's release when people were scrambling for answers for the rise of Trump in Appalachia and in other parts of the country? Yeah. Well, I think it's, that's really important. And I, it's always something that I want to bring into conversations about Vance, because Vance is one guy, and he was brought into this media machine that was looking for answers, but also already had particular stories to tell. Now, his his involvement in that, there there were other ways that he could have responded to to that um, being brought into that machine. But it's it's not just Vance, and I don't think much is gained by demonizing any one person, and certainly not by demonizing JD Vance for for this. But what happened is that you know he's he wasn't just 
a guy telling a story about his family. He was brought along by other law professors at Yale. Amy Chua, who wrote the book Tiger Mom, was really the person who encouraged him to write this book and who had a a lot of, I think, influence on the ways that he framed particular stories. So for example, there are moments where he he really positions himself as a little bit of a like an outsider where he talks about not knowing what kind of silverware to use and goes in a little heavy on these moments of being you know being kind of all shucks um, that he takes on that approach and I think that that was really encouraged by Amy Chua and his other advisors to position himself in a particular way. So from the beginning, as he's writing this memoir, there's a lot of intentionality behind it, and not all of it is his. It's not just J.D. Vance wanting to tell his family's story. And then after the book got out in the world, you know, with support from these Republican powerhouses that were backing the book, there was a lot of, a lot of connections that he was able to use to be a part of conversations that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise. And so the book comes out in uh, the summer of 2016 with a rise toward the election, which at that point, I think people were generally puzzled by and curious about Trump, but most people were not predicting that he would win um, when uh, Hillbilly Elegy came out. And I think that Hillbilly Elegy contributed to the answer that Appalachian people are, you know, contribute to this idea that Appalachian people are poor because they're lazy and that they don't really need to be rescued. And so that's that's part of what's happening leading up to the election. But it really flew off the shelves after the election when so many people from a lot of different perspectives were trying to figure out what just happened and why Trump had won and why he had gotten the particular votes that he had gotten. It baffled a lot of a lot of people that um, this New Yorker who was wealthy had swept the rural poor vote, which we now know to look at this in a more complicated way. But that was really the story that was being told was that, you know, if you look at a place like West Virginia, it was told in a really simplistic way that Trump had come in and tapped into something in West Virginia, which I think is, you know, is true um, in a certain way. But the stories that were being written after the election that looked to Hillbilly Elegy as an answer, the questions that they were asking and the answers that they found are familiar questions and familiar answers that are telling the same kinds of stories and tapping into the same stereotypes about a region. But I think that Hillbilly Elegy's success in some ways was really about some genuine questions about what are Appalachian people like and why would they vote for Trump? And the answer that Vance gives allows folks, you know, liberal New Englanders, uh, to read that book and say, oh, well, yeah, I guess they kind of got what they deserved because they're, they're not working hard. There's all these drug problems and they're lazy and they're infighting and look at his story and look at, you know, he's lucky that he, he got out, but he got out by his own hard work. And it kind of plays into this idea of, you know, even though it was unfortunately Hillary Clinton who said it, this idea of, 
you know, deplorables. Like that's kind of the the Appalachia that J.D. Vance is portraying in his book. And so it gives even well-intentioned readers a chance in 2016 to kind of write off the region to say, well, okay, the they they voted that way and they're getting what they deserve. Yeah, that's right. It's a very simple narrative that people could latch onto. Never mind that there is deep-rooted poverty in the region, but Vance's story absolved them of having to grapple with some of those issues, didn't it? Definitely. Ta-Nehisi Coates has this this piece in The Atlantic that ran um, called The First White President. And he's looking there at all of these statistics that, that demonstrate that Trump didn't just win the poor white vote. We don't need to just look at Appalachia. We can also look at places like Long Island. He won the white vote. You know, and Coates' perspective is that he really was running on this white supremacist platform that tapped into this racism that was, in some cases, latent or dormant. And, you know, so he he's making a different kind of case. But in the, the statistics that someone like Coates looks at, you see a much more complicated picture of voting in a place like West Virginia and looking at the the voting patterns that are that are united by race more than class which is a different story than than you were hearing immediately after the election when you're reading hillbilly elegy do you think the fact that Vance is from Appalachia lent him more credibility than say a journalist who just parachutes in to cover poverty in the region Sure. I think, I think, I mean, there, there are a lot of people who are quick to point out that he spent some summers in Appalachia and that he's leaning on that and claiming that in a way that isn't very fair. I happen to think that the gatekeeping of who gets to tell stories and who counts as Appalachian just isn't very useful. I think that where someone is raised isn't necessarily I don't think that that gives you a passport to write about that place. And so, but but to answer your question, yes, I think that he worked really hard to position himself in that way so that he could be a spokesperson. Um, I just happen to have issues with the idea that, you know, I can be a spokesperson for Appalachia because I was born and raised there. I don't think that that necessarily gives me the right to do so. I think you have to do the hard work of, of studying a place and thinking hard about a place to be able to advocate for it. And so, you know, getting to the idea of like Charles Corral with Christmas in Appalachia. This road, if you can call it that, that leads to the Pert Creek School in Letcher County, Kentucky. There are tens of thousands of roads like this winding back along the creeks and hollows of 11 states. And beside these roads, the shacks of tar paper and pine, which are the homes of a million permanently poor. That cabin down there belongs to Letcher West. George and Janie and Maggie West use this road to get to school. At this time of year, they never get there with dry feet. You know, back several decades ago during the war on poverty, Corral comes in and tells particular stories about the region, just like so many people from not North Carolina, people from Canada, people from all over the the world, but especially the country, came into Appalachia. And, and what happened there is actually, I think, really similar to what happens in Hillbilly Elegy, which is that 
journalists and filmmakers came in and they literally drove down the same roads that the previous filmmaker had driven down. And they're literally filming some of the same cabins and some of the same children because they have a preconceived idea of the poverty that they want to find there, the images that they want to find there. I don't know how intentional it is or how much Vance himself had sort of bought into this, but I think he's reproducing those same notions in his own narrative. But he certainly has a different position as an insider that he he clings to fiercely. Is that evidence of a feedback loop in which people hear these narratives that are told about their homes and pretty soon they start to absorb them into their own identities? I think so. I think that you you start to absorb them and you start to believe them. And that's that's why I'm committed to writing about the function of stereotypes in Appalachia. I believe that they matter. And I think that people growing up identifying with the region can buy into these stereotypes. And even though you might have contradictory evidence all around you of what the region really is like, the power of stereotypes is real and it can have a real effect on the choices you make leaving the region versus finding a way to stay in the region and bringing jobs there or doing your work there. I mean, there, there are real effects that happen because of these stereotypes. It's not just about, you know, someone feeling bad about themselves. It, it affects the choices that people make. Can you talk about the fierce backlash against Vance and Hillbilly Elegy? that arose out of Appalachia, mm-hmm. and also how the response united people who had diverse life experiences and political beliefs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, immediately after, after Hillbilly Elegy came out, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of people who identify as Appalachian um, went and read the book because, you know, they were excited to, to read a book. Um, I think we're, we're, uh, generally, I mean, as a, I don't want to speak of all of Appalachia, but as somebody who, who writes in the region, I'm eager to read other people writing in the region, writing about the region. And so I think a lot of folks went out and read Hillbilly Elegy. And what I heard pretty consistently was that there are parts of the book that resonate with people. There are parts of the book that were familiar, that someone had a mama or a mima who reminded them of, of his grandmother. And someone had, you know, an uncle that was similar. And, and so there are certain parts that are familiar about his story. Frankly, I think it, it is more about class, but there's, you know, probably some region as well. Um But then as the book keeps going, that shift that I already mentioned from I to we really irritated a lot of people. A lot of people who maybe aligned with him politically were still like, whoa, buddy, how are you making this claim about about this, you know, about hillbillies? Like, what are you doing here? They just felt like they he had overstepped. And then a lot of people, too from the region saw what he was doing, saw that it was a political move and that it was functioning um, in a way similar to, I think it's Dwight Billings in our collection that points out the ways that this works like the the Moynihan report did, um, which of course is kind of this classic scapegoating of the, the oppressed people blaming, blaming, um, in that case, blaming African Americans for their own poverty. And so a lot of people kind of got around the same idea of like, wait a minute, you're you're blaming 
poor people for being poor here. What what's your what are your plans here? What's at stake? Why are you doing this? Um, and then I think a lot of the people who saw that that was the effect that the book was having, especially after the election and after readership really jumped, and that he was being brought out to speak for the region, and he was accepting all of these invitations and speaking on behalf of the region in this way, that's when I think a lot of people from from Appalachia really had had enough and thought, why are you speaking for me? There are more perspectives than the one that you represent, and I need to add my voice to complicate this. So there was some really direct pushback and arguing with with him factually, arguing with him uh, a lot of challenges that he just hadn't done his work. He's kind of positioning himself as a sociologist, and he's he has no sources, and he's referencing um, he's referencing people that that no one would continue to reference today. He's he's pretty uninformed in particular ways. There are all kinds of different ways that people um, really pushed back and, and challenged Vance and this book. Um, but I think part of it too was just the idea of adding adding more voices to to this one person who suddenly became the spokesperson for the region. I wondered if we could switch gears and talk about the film adaptation of Hillbilly Elegy. Here is a clip from the trailer. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> How many times have you seen this? Oh, about a hundred. Everyone in this world is one of three kinds. Good Terminator, a bad Terminator, and neutral. You're a good Terminator. Well, I wasn't always. I had to learn. You could too. I love you. I promise that I'm gonna do better. Candy, you got a right to your own life. Don't make us your excuse, JD. Family's the only thing that means a goddamn. You learn it. It's directed by Ron Howard, and that's fascinating for me personally because he starred in The Andy Griffith Show, which was set in a small town not too far from where I'm from in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We could talk ad nauseum about how that show maintained uh, stereotypes about small towns and law enforcement and so forth, but I wondered if we could talk about Ron Howard's film, Hillbilly Elegy, and why it's such an opportune time to discuss the film as it relates to the perpetuation of right. stereotypes I think it's of Appalachian life. I think it's important to talk life. about because even though J.D. Vance and Hillbilly Elegy are the subject immediately, this is one chapter in a much longer story. I mean, there are, if you if you spend much time looking at Appalachia and looking at the stories that have been told about Appalachia, you'll see that since it was defined as a region, there has been this tension between people who are telling stories about the place and then those who are the object of those stories telling their own stories and pushing back to complicate 
you know, JD, we're talking about J.D. Vance today. We could be talking about the Kentucky cycle in 1992, which which led to this this great collection called Back Talk from Appalachia, which is very similar and certainly a precursor for Appalachian reckoning. But it matters to talk about these stories because this will, once people stop talking about J.D. Vance, they're still going to be talking about Appalachia because there is an investment in having a particular image of Appalachia. In terms of this, this, you know, this movie by Ron Howard, I think it's gotten so much attention in part because so much money went to the making of this film. I mean, I think that the number was $45 million that Netflix paid. And it was at the time the largest amount that they had paid you know, to create a film. The fact that Ron Howard is, you know, a really well-established director, he must have chosen this text really intentionally. You know, I haven't seen the film. I have seen the trailer. I actually think that the film might tell a story that perpetuates some stereotypes, but I think that it's hard for me to understand to see how the film is going to do the same thing that the book did in terms of speaking on behalf of all Appalachian people and turning into, you know, a directive, a political directive. I don't, I I think it's probably going to stick with the narrative of Vance and it's probably not going to be a narrative that I find very complicated. And I think it will probably retell the same stories that have been told before, but I don't feel like it's my place to say that that's not Vance's experience. To me, the the real issue with the book is that stepping into a different position and speaking on behalf of. And, and so I think it's possible that the movie is going to do something different. What I understand about the film, though, is that we're going to see the same stereotypes that we've seen before. And what I would love to see is just a more accurate, honest portrayal of the region, which could take you know, hundreds of different forms, hundreds of different kinds of characters, people of different races, people who are in different kinds of houses, people who have different kinds of jobs. I mean, this this is falling just right into the ruts of that well-worn road that people like Charles Corral drove down back in the 60s. Let's talk a little bit more about those Appalachian stereotypes in cinema. It's quite a long list, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of them and there's not a lot of them is the thing. I mean, I think that there's this great film scholar, Donald Bogle, who wrote a book about the representation of African-Americans in American cinema. And and what he found is that there are about six roles that African-Americans end up being cast in. And you can look at all of these different depictions and they kind of fall into these same roles. And so Bogle was an important model for me when I started looking closely at Appalachian film to see what kind of characters do we see? What kind of stories do we see told? Um, And Jerry Williamson had done really important work in looking at Appalachian film before me. I wanted to bring a critical race theory lens to looking at Appalachia because what I found was that there was always this othering that was happening to Appalachian characters. Very rarely do we see complex figures who the viewer is meant to identify with. So often, even the protagonists of Appalachian narratives are already 
outsiders. They're othered in, in so many ways. And so I use this critical race lens to make an argument about the, the portrayals of Appalachian people. But I think that, you know, you think about these handful of types like Think about how many horror films are set in, certainly in rural places, but also in, in the mountains in Appalachia. So there's this monstrous mountaineer type that is kind of the, the horrific image of, of what happens when you're off the grid for too long, when you're too far out of civilization, this is, this is what you become. And then we have kind of the the flip side of that is this idealized mountain man who is... Um, fierce and independent. And there are ways that this is like a heroic figure, but he's still a shallow figure, usually in depictions. Born on the mountaintop in Tennessee, green estate in the land of the free, raised in the woods so he knew every tree, killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. When we look at, at male stereotypes, another version is this really, it's very akin to depictions of African-Americans, especially in the early 20th century, but it's this really lazy buffoon kind of figure who's, you know, always in overalls, usually has moonshine and a rifle. I mean, just like this hillbilly image that we can all draw to mind, I think. All of these images work to justify the erasure of a region. And the abuse of the land and the abuse of the people who, who live there. So these same types are used over and over for a really specific purpose, I think. It matters that we see, you know, even on a show like Saturday Night Live, the images that they have of Appalachian people or of, of, of mountaineers are tied to these images from the, from the 19th century around alcoholism, incest, these bizarre kind of monstrous figurines that allow people to see Appalachians as not right. And they're getting what they deserve when, you know, there's a reason there are coal mines there. There's a reason the timber industry is there. There's a reason all of these extractive industries are there. When we continue to see the people who live in those regions as less than human, to bring some some female types in, this like granny figure that you see, you know, Beverly Hillbillies for sure, but you can think of this granny figure in cartoons and, and you know, perpetuated in film. And then this kind of over-sexualized young female figure, they're all doing the same kinds of things to to dehumanize the the people who live there. And I, I believe it is both overtly and covertly serving a really clear purpose to keep Appalachia as as outsiders for the rest of the country. They're the scapegoat for a large part of the country. Deliverance is probably the movie most associated with Appalachia. Can you talk about the ways that that film perpetuated Appalachian stereotypes, just like Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy does? Yeah, yeah. So if you think about the film Deliverance, um, which is the movie most associated with Appalachia, and I've written about the ways that different places I've lived and visited when I've said that I'm from Appalachia, people start talking about Deliverance in a way that is just baffling to me as if they don't realize that it's a horror film. Yeah, like it's a documentary or something. but it's always said sort of as a joke, but but it's powerful. It's powerful how 
there are people who are afraid to drive through North Georgia because of deliverance, as if that is somehow really accurate. So in that movie, and I'll, I don't, I never know how many people have actually seen that film, but you know, the basic plot is you have these four guys from Atlanta who go to raft a river before the river is dammed to create power for people in Atlanta. And it's in North Georgia. And there are people who live in that area that's going to be flooded and they're going to be removed. They're in the process of being removed. So you see, I think, two types of people in this region. First, an image that a lot of people are familiar with is this this banjo boy from the dueling banjos scene that's pretty famous. So in that scene, we see a palsied child through a window. We see just extreme poverty. And the Atlantans make jokes about this. And they, they're sort of interested in it in a certain way, but they're also, you know, really glad that they're just passing through. And so this this exchange happens with one of the, the guys from Atlanta and this boy who is who is mute throughout the film and is just seen to be, he's shown to be very strange. And yet he is a savant with the banjo and they have this banjo duel. Come on, I'm with you. That kind of, I think, functions to show Appalachian people as just kind of otherworldly, that they're quaint and there's something sort of mystical about them, but they ain't right. You know, it's like they're they're pre-modern and you can understand that it's worth their erasure for another power plant. And then the other type that you see are these horrific, scary, scary men who are hunting and they see these guys who are rafting and they have guns with them and they, they rape one of the men. And it's like this, this horrific scene. Um, and then the rest of the film really is kind of a survival slash revenge plot. And it's justified because of this horrible action that has taken place. And so what ends up happening is that this uber innocent, naive banjo boy gets conflated with this monstrous rapist and they stand in for Appalachia. And that's what people think of when they think of of the mountains is the some weird conflation of these two like oppositional characters that are encountered in this film. So I think Deliverance is actually like a pretty complicated and interesting, I think it's an excellent novel. I think it's a pretty complicated and interesting film, but the way that people conceive of Deliverance, the cultural space that that film takes up for people who haven't even seen the film is the best example I can think of for the power of representation and how representation becomes so much bigger than the thing it's supposed to be representing. Let's talk a little bit about how growing up in Appalachia shaped your own identity and how you describe yourself to others who did not grow up in the region. I moved to Boston after grad school and saying that I was from Appalachia and someone did the 
And I was like, what? Like, I'm, I'm from Asheville. Like, you know, Asheville, like it's, you know, there's a great art scene and there, and, and people didn't know Asheville at the time and they were triggered. It was like, call it in one piece, I've written this Pavlovian response to hear Appalachia to hear mountains and or southern mountains and to to think of this scene. And so I didn't know that that was going to be the case. I didn't know that people had that association. For me, Deliverance was just like this crazy horror film. And I grew up not far from where it was filmed. And so I remember like Burt Reynolds was on the wall of restaurants in, you know, my hometown because he had eaten there while he was staying nearby doing the filming. And so for me it was like a cool it was kind of cool that the movie was made not far not far from where i was from um but it, i never thought of it as you know trying to realistically describe the place i was from so when i got to different places and introduced myself and realized that this image of appalachia had gotten there before me i did what most people do and i stopped introducing myself as from there and i would say i was from north carolina instead and then i would just not say and i learned to cover up my accent and so i i changed the way i spoke i dissociated from the place you know in certain contexts and it was a huge loss and so when i moved back to the region for grad school i was so glad to be able to to return to a place and, and remember like, no, it's really the way I thought it was. It's really complicated. And sure, there are like conservative people and there are liberal people and there, you know, there's a little bit of everything in, I was in East Tennessee at the time uh, in Knoxville, but it was like, I almost had to remind myself that the place that I knew and loved really was as I had remembered it instead of the way that it had been portrayed and reflected back to me. We discussed a little bit ago the wave of news reporters who descended upon Appalachia throughout the war on poverty. What role did the news media and documentaries play in shaping the images the people from around the country had of Appalachian life at that time? And then talk about the backlash at those representations, which is very similar to the reaction that arose after the release of Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's such an interesting moment when Johnson declares the war on poverty, and he does so really intentionally in a white rural space rather than a black urban space. Um, so he comes to Appalachia and you know brings reporters and is on this this porch where he he officially launches this campaign of this war on poverty, and so. Part of what happens then is that because the national attention was was shifted toward um, a domestic war on poverty, so news media is also paying attention to this. And so lots of reporters came into regions. And, you know, if they drove into a place like my hometown of Waynesville, North Carolina, which had a bustling Main Street and, you know, all of these family-owned businesses and you know, single family homes that were brick homes and whatever, that's not what they wanted to see. So they would have kept driving and they would have sought out the same kind of poverty that they were looking for. And so on the one hand, this makes sense because it's a war on poverty. So they're looking for images of poverty to share, but it came to seem as if anyone living in this region 
lived in a home like the ones that were depicted in these these news stories or these documentaries. It's it's a little bit of like what we now would think of as parachute journalism, where someone drops in and takes what they need. Um, it certainly paved the way for that, which which still happens. But I think that there was just a need to tell the same the same stories and to tell them quickly. So you have news stories that are functioning in this way. But then you also have documentarians who are probably driven by a lot of different motivations. There's a film called Stranger with a Camera, directed by Elizabeth Barrett, which tells about her experience of growing up in this town that was near near where um, this murder of a Canadian documentarian took place. So this documentarian had come in and had asked to take photographs of this person in his house. He was granted permission, and then you know the the owner of the home came by and was was fed up with having these these outsiders come and take pictures and and air dirty laundry. And it wasn't done with much respect, and it wasn't done with much help. And he shot and killed this documentarian. And so Elizabeth Barrett tells the tells her story about sort of knowing about that happening and growing up right next door in being on the homecoming court and having these vacations and like these different experiences. And, And her Appalachia was not captured in these images. And so in her film, she really looks at the power of, of, um, of the camera, the power of a filmmaker to come in and capture these images and the the damage that can really happen. And she's looking at it in a really complicated way because um, Hugh O'Connor, the the filmmaker who was killed, seems to have had really good intentions. He was actually really trying to help, but he was, you know, in the wrong place at the right time or at the wrong time. Um, But he was there because of the people who had come before and had already kind of portrayed this is what this region is. So there was this long history of of people coming in and taking the same stories. And the other thing that happened with the war on poverty is the Appalachian Regional Commission was formed. And so the Appalachian Regional Commission does lots of different things, but part of what the effect was um, the creation of grants. And so I love this this great moment when there are these terrible images of Appalachia that are being portrayed and it's really shaping the way that the rest of the country thinks about this region in a really simplistic way. And then um, a group of people formed, they got a grant from the Appalachian Regional Commission and formed Apple Shop, which um, is still thriving and was formed really to to empower people to tell their own stories. It's a media company. They they do storytelling and film making and they the whole idea is to to let Appalachian people um, tell their own stories and record stories that they see around them. So that backlash is such a positive backlash in this way because it really led to so many people capturing a diversity of Appalachian narratives and folkways um, that we still have because they were recorded and protected. And so there was something awfully good that came out of this dark period of representation of Appalachia. The media landscape has shifted since the founding of Apple Shop in 1969, 
with the rise of publications like Scalawag and 100 Days in Appalachia. Do you think organizations like these have mitigated the damage that was done during the 2016 election coverage of the region? No. <laughs> I, I have a, a hat that says Apple Shop on it, and whenever I wear it, and you know, I, I live in Maine right now, but when I wear it, no one knows what Apple Shop is. And so I wear it because I like to tell the story and tell people to go to their website. But the impact of Apple Shop, I mean, they can't compare with uh, or compete with um, just the footage, the, the coverage of, um, they're, they're, they can't compete with Ron Howard you know, the money behind Ron Howard and how many people are going to see Hillbilly Elegy and how many people watched particular stories that were being told, like you said, after the 2016 election. I mean, those there was a sort of revival of those um, those images of going going and seeking out the, the poorest places and looking at them and trying to understand them um, maybe it's done more delicately today, but maybe not, because we still, I think, have an investment in seeing Appalachia as white, rural, and poor. And um, and we, as a nation, derive an enormous amount of our energy from the region and don't like to think about it and, and need to have a particular narrow image of the people who live in those regions. McCarroll was born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains of Western North Carolina, and is the author of several books, including Unwhite, Appalachia, Race and Film, and Appalachian Reckoning. Music for Southern Discomfort was recorded by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jonathan Michaels.